Hi, I'm Miranda Wright with HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. Tonight's lesson, we're going to do another name of God. Tonight's name is El Elyon. It means most high. The name comes from Deuteronomy chapter 26. We're going to read through the text. And we're going to dissect it a little bit, as we usually do with these names, to see the context of what was going on around the, the situation whenever the name was given, because it gives you more understanding into why God declares this uh, attribute of himself in these names. So starting in verse 1, Deuteronomy 26, we're going to actually read the whole chapter, but we're going to break it up and talk about a few things in it as we do. So in the beginning, starting at verse 1, it says, And it shall be, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Of course, this was talking about them coming into the promised land after they had finally made it through the wilderness. He's saying, when you come into this land to possess it, to dwell therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all of the fruits of the earth, which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt put it in a basket, and shalt go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there, because this was speaking in advance, so they didn't know where the temple would be located. But he said, God will choose a place, and when he does, you bring the first fruits of whatever you produce in that land to that place and offer it to the Lord. And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days and say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God that I am come unto the country which the Lord swear unto my fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, a Syrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our afflictions and our labor and our oppressions. So he's saying, when you bring these first fruits, once you get the land that God has given you, once he's blessed you, once he's prospered you, you go and you give of the first fruits and then you give him thanks for all the things that you have. And you basically rehash the story to give a remembrance to the fact that you were once a heathen, you were once in bondage, you were once a slave in Egypt. But the Lord heard your cry, your plea, and he came and he rescued you and he saved you and he delivered you. When you give this offering, you, you give it as a thanks and a remembrance for all that he has done, for all that he's brought you to and for all that he's given you. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders, remembering all of his miracles that he did in order to deliver you from this bondage. And he hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land 
even a land that floweth with milk and honey. So he, he brought us into this land. He prospered us. He allowed us to have all of these wonderful things. The land is abundant now. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And so the very first things that are productive and, and produced, you give it back to him and give thanks. Actually, that's where we're coming up on Thanksgiving. That's actually where Thanksgiving came from because the uh, pilgrims, which were Christians, they left their land where they were oppressed, like the Israelites left Egypt. They came to America, a land that they felt like God had promised them. And then when they first finally produced some fruits, they brought it all together for a harvest, them and, and the Native Americans and all those around, to give God thanks. And that was, their, that was the first Thanksgiving. So it, it was kind of the same thing, but for Israel and the Promised Land. This was the first time that they really bared fruit and produced in the Promised Land. They were to bring all these things and give thanks and remember everything that they had went through. And now, behold... I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God, and worship before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee and unto thine house, thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you, even thou hast made an end of tithing all the tithes of thine increase the third year, which is the year of tithing, which I thought was interesting because last Sunday we talked about the, the, the tree and the seasons and the producing fruit and how Jesus said that within three years you should be producing some fruit. And he was referring to people because we are like trees planted by the water. And within three years of, of receiving the seed and the word and the nourishment of salvation and all of those things, we should start to produce some fruit. And he said, if it doesn't produce some fruit, eventually he's going to get rid of it out of the vineyard and plant another one in its place. So I thought this very interesting that they said that in the third year, it was the year of tithing. In other words, it's the year of giving back. For three years, God has poured in. So by the third year, you ought to be starting to give back. For three years, you've been nourished. For three years, you've been ministered to. For three years, you've been checked up on. For three years, you've been preached into and taught and, and, and tended to. By the third year, you ought to be starting to give back to God. You ought to be witnessing. You ought to be testifying. You ought to be leading in. Jesus said, if you're not gathering, you're scattering. You're either for me or against me. And I can tell you by experience in church, there really are only two. You can look through and you can see there are those who bring people in and there are those who are scattering people out that run people off. And now we all know it's difficult and we all bring in a whole lot more than what stays, but nevertheless, you can see there are those who never bring in. There are those who only scatter. There are those who labor to bring in. They're doing the best that they can with what they know how. Jesus said, there's no middle ground. You're either for me or against me. And this is one of the ways you know that by the third year, they ought to be showing some kind of fruit. Now, this was talking about physical fruit, but it parallels both. I can say that um, God giving me this word was showing me some things. I know that God had started me doing the manas, and he poured into me for three years. He's, every day he'd sit with me and learn, and I was writing the manas and putting stuff out 
and getting all these messages together for three years. And then after three years of him pouring into me, he sent me to Baton Rouge to do the one blood to pour out. It was the year of giving back. It was a giving unto him. Everything that he had given me, all of the fruit, all of the revelation, all of the word, then got poured back out. It was given back. And I can see that those who had seeds planted in them three years ago that have continued to grow and the Lord has worked on them. It's been three years now since then. Many of those are now being called into ministries. It's their time to give back. And some that haven't produced fruit, God's beginning to pluck up. So we see these, these cycles and these archetypes in Scripture. So he said, by the third year, you need to bring your fruits. And the reason he's calling it first fruits is because it, most fruit trees take about three years before they produce anything. So he's saying the first fruits that start to be produced, they need to bring and give back to the Lord. So it's the year of giving back. And thou hast given it unto the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, it's interesting because it says you're giving it unto the Lord, but he says that what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. So in actuality, you're giving it, he says, to the Levite, which was the priest because they didn't have fields to, to supply for themselves. They lived and did the work of the ministry, so he gave to the priest to continue the work of the ministry, to the stranger, to the fatherless, which is the orphans, and to the widows, those who need it, those who couldn't tend to themselves, that they may eat within thy gates and be filled. God will feed you so that you can feed others. His water is for you, but your fruits are for others. The water is the word. The Bible talks about the water of the word. He gives us his word. He ministers to us. We draw up from those deep wells. That's what a tree that's planted by the water is, whose roots go deep. And then they produce the good fruit. You dig in. You sit in prayer. You pull up that deep well revelation, the word of God, and that's what nourishes you. But that's also what produces the fruit in you, which then nourishes others which is that good godly character that they see and they say something's different. What is this? Why are you like this? Well, let me tell you, I wasn't like this. I used to be wretched and, and wicked and undone, but I met Jesus and this is Jesus's character. And now he lives inside of me. So what you're seeing is a reflection of him, the fruits of the spirit. That's what's for others. That's what spreads the kingdom. That's what spreads the gospel. The fruit is what the reproduction of the tree. It's what holds the seed. It's the next word that's planted in somebody else. But it's not just the seed because the fruit itself nourishes that seed. It's the environment in which that seed can take root and grow. So it's going to take love, gentleness, kindness, faith, patience, self-control, all of the character, the fruits of the spirit to create the environment to nourish that word so it can take root and grow. But that comes when you soak in the, the water of the word and his presence. So his water is for you, but your fruits are for others. The fruits are for him first, and then for others second, because the commandment said to love God first with all of your heart, and then to love others. Love is a fruit. The fruits are first for God. You give the fruits first to God. He gets the first fruits, and then it goes to others, because if you give all of your fruits to others and you don't spend any time with God, you're going to stop producing fruit. You have to give to God first. Within three years, a tree should be producing fruit. The first fruits are to be given to the Lord, and all are to rejoice about it. 
and be grateful for all that the Lord has given, for his promises and his faithfulness. All right, picking up in the uh, verse 13. Then thou shalt say before the Lord thy God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of mine house, and also have given them unto the Levites, and unto the stranger, to the fatherless, and to the widow, according to all thy commandments which thou hast commanded me. All right, he gave to the Lord the tithe, he gave to the widow, to the orphan. In other words, the commandment was to be generous. There's something that we have to understand about what's taking place here. This is the third year after they come into the promised land. So after three years, they come in, he, he trains them in the wilderness, he brings them in. He says, okay, here, go, produce, be prosperous, here's your blessing. And then he gives them three years. And then he brings them in and he examines the fruit, really, is what's happening. Come before the Lord and we're going to test some things. The first thing that he tests is, in this three years, have you been generous? Because we see it all the time where people are in their wilderness season and they're crying out for God to bring them to this promise or to bring them to this blessing. And when the blessings come, then they turn on God. Then they get selfish. Then they consume it upon their own lust. Then they forget about God. That was one of the things that he pled with them when they went into the promised land. Don't forget about me. Don't take advantage of the blessings. I trained you in the wilderness on how to properly steward the blessing that I'm about to give you. I want to actually give you more, but I have to see how you handle this first. So really at the three-year part, it was really kind of he was examining the fruit and seeing how did you do. So we see the wilderness as a testing season, and we see the promise as the, the breakthrough, the reward. Praise the Lord. It is. But a whole new test starts. And this is where he's checking the results. So the first thing he checks is, did they give their first fruits back to the Lord, to the widow, to the orphan? Were they generous with what they were given in the promise? It continues, I have not transgressed thy commandments. Did you continue to obey God once you got into the promise? Neither have I forgotten them. Did you get distracted by the blessings once you got your promise? I have not eaten thereof in my mourning, he says. This talks both to showing compassion, but also did they keep fasting like they were in the wilderness, even once they were now in a land of plenty where they had plenty to eat. He had taught them in the wilderness with the manna, to only eat as much as they needed, not as much as they wanted. Now he was testing them in the promise to see if they would maintain it. Basically, he took the training wheels off to see if they would stay the course on their own. You can look at the wilderness as kind of like the dad with the training wheels holding the bike saying, this is how you ride. Okay, now I'm taking the training wheels off. Let's see if you can do it on your own. Or the way the Lord kind of showed it to me today, um, I have to bring Caleb to college because his truck was getting worked on and we had some stuff to run in Ellick. And I'm sitting there on the college campus and I'm praying and it's like, it's like college. It's like they were in school before. You know, when you're in school in elementary and middle school and even a little bit in high school, you know, mom and dad is making sure you're getting up. They're making sure you go. They're making sure you're studying. And that was kind of like God in the wilderness. He was making sure that they 
learned the lessons that they went to class. Then when they got into the promised land, it was kind of like college. Okay, there's things you can learn, but it's really up to you to discipline to continue to do it. You can slum out and lazy out, or you can go, you can go further. So now they had the opportunity to prove that they were going to do it even when they didn't have to, because it wasn't about him making them do it in the wilderness to begin with. It was about him teaching them what was right. Um, I think one of the clearest ways we can see this is with the manna, because it says that he gave them every day, each person, according to his need. The, the King James says, according to his eating. But if you look up the translation of that word, it literally means according to their need, because it literally says he gave them according to their need, which was one omer per person. So he said each person gets one omer or a certain amount per day of the, of the manna. So he determined this is what you actually need and everybody gets what they need and no more. And the interesting thing is that it says that when they went out and gathered, because they didn't have a way to weigh it while they were out there, they came back in and each person weighed it to make sure that each person only got one omer. It says that those that had gathered a whole lot, when they weighed it miraculously, it was only one omer. And those who hadn't gathered enough, because maybe somebody else was greedy, when they got there miraculously, it was one omer. So it says every person miraculously got one omer. Those who had gathered much didn't have any extra, and those who had gathered little had enough. Everybody had one omer. He was showing them how you have, you know, have what you need, not what you want. Don't move in excess. And so then he tests them at this three-year mark. And so they're, this is part of what they're to profess when they come with their first fruit offering. That I haven't ceased to fast, neither have I taken away aught thereof for any unclean use, all right, how they used their blessings mattered, nor given aught thereof for the dead, right, they didn't conform to the cultures or participate in, I don't know, Halloween, didn't give it for the dead, but I have hearkened to the voice of the Lord my God, and have done according to all that thou hast commanded me. So we see that once they got into the promised land, there was this three-year time period that God was kind of watching and letting them do to see how they would handle the blessing. Then he pulls them in to examine yourself and see if they would keep up with the lessons learned in the wilderness or if they would forget them in the face of their blessings. It continues to say, look down from thy holy habitation from heaven, if we passed all of these tests, of course, and bless thy people Israel and the land which thou hast given us as thou swearest unto our fathers, a land that floweth with milk and with honey. So God really was trying to see if he could trust them with even greater blessings. He knew he couldn't trust them when they came out of Egypt. He knew he had to teach them lessons. He said, I led you like a bride into the wilderness to test you. He taught them things. We know the first thing he taught them was whenever they complained at the well and they started fighting over water, right? He was trying to teach them how to be selfless and to be a community and to work together and to think of others. They were attacked. They had to fight for each other. The manna came. They had to show some discipline and be humble and be obedient. He was taking them through their elementary, middle school, high school lessons. They get into the promised land and everybody relaxes and thinks it's over with, but no, he's still testing. 
because he wants more. He's giving you opportunity continually to go up higher. God wants to see if he can really trust them with the greater blessings and outpourings and the fruitfulness of the promised land. And more importantly, with their true calling and destiny that he has been preparing them for so long to walk in, to be a peculiar priesthood to all of the earth that he promised them before. Remember, he had given them the promise that I will make you a peculiar priesthood. He was going to make them a nation of priests that they could go out and tell the whole world about God and bring them into the kingdom. So really, that's what he's preparing them for. It's not to prepare them to have nice houses and have vineyards and have all of these things. That was part of the testing because he needed to see if he could trust them with these things, if they would still use it for his purposes and not for selfish means, or if they wouldn't forget about him once they had it. But ultimately, the goal was to prepare them to be kings and priests, to be able to be a witness to others. All right, verse 16, coming to the end of the chapter, it says, This day the Lord thy God hath commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. So at this point, they present their fruits and they examine all of these things had they done it. And then he says, This day I'm reminding you to do these things. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people as he hath promised thee and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments and to make thee high above all nations which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor, and that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord thy God, which is where the name El Elyon is in the original text, as he hath spoken. Now, it's interesting that at the end of all of this is where he gives himself the name El Elyon, which means most high, um, it's derived from the Hebrew root word that means to go up or to ascend. He is the most high God. There is nothing or no one higher. So he's telling you, you were actually the name Hebrew means people of the dust. He took the very lowest and he's teaching them to come up higher because he's high. He's the most high. He's way up high and we're way down low. He knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. But he doesn't expect us to stay down here. He starts training us to come up. They came up a little bit and got into promise. And they wanted to rest and enjoy it and incorporate in it. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're still training. I need you to come up higher, to ascend, to go up. So it also speaks to the fact that even after they had made it to the promise, that they weren't to sit and stagnate there but to start working to go up higher. Our God is the most high, and he always has new heights for us to climb. He is always calling us to go up higher. You made it through a wilderness? Great. You got a promise? Great. Will you trade God for that promise? That's the next test. Will you sit and stagnate and become distracted by that promise? That's the next test. Or will you use your last ceiling for your new floor? Will you let the promise test you 
and prove you that he can trust you worthy with more. God is calling us tonight to come up higher. Don't settle for just making it and then become distracted by the blessings. It's just a step, it's not the destination. If you're still breathing, then there's still more missions before you keep climbing. The real promised land is heaven, so don't stop fighting. There are more crowns to earn. If you're alive, then you're not done yet. I kind of see it in my mind almost like a mountain or like a stairway up to God. He's the most high. He's at the top. He's the highest. He's the ultimate goal. He's the prize. You can't get any higher. And we're climbing that staircase. We're making our way to him one step at a time. We climb one step and he cheers for us. And we get a little proud of ourselves and sit down and want to stay there. Yay, I did it. I made it. He's like, nope, nope, that's just one step. Come up higher. Don't stop there. Come up higher. Don't get distracted there. Don't get tired there. Don't go to sleep there. Rest for a minute. He gives you those moments. Now get up. Come up higher. You got a crown of righteousness when you got saved and got into right standing? Good job. There's four more crowns to work on. According to Scripture, there may be more than that that we don't even know of, but we know at least of five in total mentioned in Scripture. How about the crown of rejoicing? That most people call it the soul winner's crown. I, I think it's probably more the intercessor's crown because it specifically speaks about those who lead in, those who are like the hard cases, the difficult ones that everybody else gives up on. How about that one? How about the crown of glory? That abiding first love, maintaining fellowship with God earning crown because you love his appearing, like Paul said, from which the overflow of all true ministry, anointing, and gifts of the Spirit flow that helps us to win souls and move in true evangelism. There are other crowns to be earned. There are other lessons to be learned. There are other battles to be won. There are other territories to be taken. There are new heights than what you have experienced. Keep reaching for El Elyon, come up higher, and find him. Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, And ye shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. All of your heart. When I personally, when the Lord gave me this and I looked through it, and I looked at the things that he tested them on once they had entered the promise, I looked at, like, since... Pastor Daniel and I moved, right? That was a blessing. That was a promised land. That was an inheritance. Okay. Well, since we've been there, let me, we're not there three years yet, so let me examine the fruit now. And I'm looking at this list of things and I can start to say, hmm, Lord, I think I failed on some of these because I don't think that I'm fasting as much as I was before. Not as sternly, not as strictly. And I don't feel like I've achieved the don't get distracted by the blessings. I think there have been times where I have really struggled with the distractions of keeping up with the new things. And so I'm like, well, Lord, I, 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 don't, I know you're giving me this lesson for me at least because I'm examining the promised land and how I'm handling it. And I don't think I'm, I'm getting a hurrah on all of these. And the Lord kind of spoke back to me on it. He said, well, the good news, right, the gospel, the good news is that you're still in the test, and it's an open book test. That's why I showed you the right answer in the book. Change the answer. 
you got to love our God. He gave us the book. So really, everything is an open book test. You can find the answer in the book. The key is to search for him with all your heart so you find the answer before the end of the test. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, this was Paul speaking, but this is one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so with that visual that I have of like that staircase or that mountain and El Elyon, the most high is the most high. He is the prize. He is the one that we're pressing towards. Don't get too proud of the step you climbed already. Leave those things behind and press on towards the mark. Keep climbing. There are new heights to reach. There's more to go through. He loves us and he created us for fellowship and for partnership. Therefore, everything he does is to encourage or to push us to that ends. So then we have to ask ourselves this. If he is the most high and he wants you with him, will he ever stop calling you to come up higher as long as you live? If you're still breathing, if you're still here, he's still calling you come up higher. I think that if you actually make it to the prize, that's when you go home. <laughs> that's heaven. <laughs> that's the prize. So as long as you're still here, there's still something more he wants you to do, more that he wants to teach you. He's still calling you to come up higher. Don't ever get comfortable on any step of the climb. Remember that there's still more. So then here is discernment. Any voice that makes you okay with being complacent or stagnant or distracted, or to give your attention to the creation more than the creator, the promise more than the provider, is not the voice of the bridegroom, it's the voice of another. In our last passage, we're going to close with Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. It says, My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my beloved, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of the bird is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Jesus already came down to us. He left his father's house. He came down to us to betroth us because in the culture of the time, the bridegroom would leave and come to the house of the bride's father to come together and to share a cup of, of covenant, a cup of wine. And when they both drank out of that same cup in the bride's father's house, that was the sign that she was accepting the betrothal and they were going to be married. Jesus left his father's house. He came down to the bride's father's house. At the time, it said that the devil was the king of this world. He was going to be judged. So we were the children of the devil. So Jesus literally married us, the children of the devil. He went to her father's house to betroth her. He already came down to us, right? Then it says he goes back to his father's house to prepare a place for us. So now it's our place to come up to meet him. He's not coming down to our level anymore. We have to come up higher. 
He's calling us, come up. After the Lord gave me this message, I had opened to this streams in the desert devotion. And it ended with this, this illustration, I guess. And I want to read it because I see a great tactic of the enemy in this. Uh, this is really what was the downfall of Samson and many a, a greats in Scripture. They didn't take seriously the tactic of the enemy to get them comfortable on the step or to pull them down when God is saying, come up higher. He says in um, the stream's devotion, it says, On a day in the autumn, I saw a prairie eagle mortally wounded by a rifle shot. His eyes still gleamed like a circle of light. Then he slowly turned his head and gave one more searching and longing look at the sky. He had often swept those starry spaces with his wonderful wings. His beautiful sky was the home of his heart. It was the eagle's domain. A thousand times he had exploited there his splendid strength. In those fairway heights, he had played with the lightnings and raced with the winds. And now, so far away from home, the eagle lay dying, done to the last breath to the death, because for once he forgot and flew too low. The soul is that eagle. This is not its home. It must not lose the skyward look. We must keep faith. We must keep hope. We must keep courage. We must keep Christ. We would better creep away from the battlefield at once if we are not going to be brave. There is no time for the soul to stampede. Keep the skyward look, my soul. Keep the skyward look. And, and as I read this, I thought, you know, the eagle was like Samson. Don't let it be like you. Don't let the enemy make you so comfortable or prideful that he lulls you down to a place where he can easily destroy you. Go up higher. I also see the eagle, obviously, as America because America was a promised land for a lot of people, for the church. They were escaping persecution. They were running from bondage. They came to America. They got their promise. They got their blessing. But over time, they got distracted by the blessing. They stopped going higher. They stopped keeping their eyes on God. They stopped pursuing God. And it's sad because the way he describes it, that eagle knows he's dying. He looks up at the sky and he imagines when he used to soar so high and so free. And I think for anybody that's moved in the power of an anointing or, or the fire of God, like you can sympathize with that because there have been those times where you have allowed the enemy to pull you down and you just think back on the power and the fire and the, the closeness that you had with God and it's, it's, it's very heartbreaking, like the death of that eagle. It says he looks up and he sees all of that majesty that he once was in, but he just allowed himself to come a little too low and the enemy took him out. That's what Samson did. That's what the church has done many times. That's what America has done. In Ezekiel, there's a parable of two eagles, and it's talking about the king of Babylon and the king of um, Egypt. 
and how Israel puts their trust in these other things and instead of in God. And it's sad because in part of the imagery of it, Israel is depicted as the vine and, and the tender branches as Judah and the kings and so forth. And it says that when the eagle approaches, the, the vine turns and reaches for it, showing that from the very root there's just something longing and thirsting for those things. But it says you were in good soil. You had everything you needed. I nourished you and I watered you. But yet you're reaching out for these other things. That's what the church is doing. God has provided everything that's needed, the anointing, his blood, his grace, his Holy Spirit, but yet they reach for these other things. There's something in their heart that just wants the things of Egypt and of Babylon, and it breaks God's heart. But that's what happens to the individual also when they're seduced by the blessings and forget the blesser. Everything was there in the ground. They didn't need to reach for something else. If he was our God and our provider in the wilderness, he still has everything we need in the promise. Don't be distracted by the promise. What he's given you is only to give out. It's only to bless others. Come back, draw, dig those roots down, draw from those deep waters, let him nourish you so you can nourish those around you. If you're in a promised land, don't let the land defeat you. You are there to defeat and possess the land and to bring him, the God of that was with you in the wilderness, the God that sustained you when you were just the people of the dust, and he's brought you to a new place for a purpose. Don't settle there. Keep coming up. Come up higher. I was hoping Jacob was here because I was going to make him sing that song for us. Come up now, my beloved. That's really good. But this is what he gave me, and I think it's a, um, it's a good word. It's a good heart check. It's a good reminder for all of us. And I see a good parallel of it for the nation and for the church also. So we're going to close and we're going to pray. Lord, we thank you for examining the fruits tonight. Lord, we thank you for reminding us of the purpose of our wilderness, that it was a training and that when we come into promise, you began to test us, Lord. Lord, we pray that we continue to press forward and always pass that test. Lord, we pray for the church and for the nation. Lord, and with a broken heart, when we think of how powerful the church of America once was and how powerful the nation was, how anointed and mighty it was in the world, Lord, for, for the purposes of spreading the gospel in the kingdom, but that eagle flew a little too low, Lord. And, and Lord, I just pray right now that the church would not keep grabbing at that, but that it would dig its roots in deep to the word of God and know that you are the supplier of everything that we need, Lord. If everything that Egypt and Babylon offers fails, Lord, then so be it, because we still have the one who sustained in the wilderness. We still have the one who provided the manna. May not be everything that we want, but you give everything that we need. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you teach us and that when we forget those lessons, that's when the stripping comes again. The Israelites were stripped in the wilderness. They learned the lessons. They were taught. They went into promise. And then Samson forgot it again and had to be stripped again before he could be used, Lord. And he is a type of the anointed church. So, Lord, we pray for your anointing in the church, Lord. We pray for it in our lives. We 
fight for it. We contend for it, Lord. We reach for it. We go up higher because we know that it is all that we need to break the yokes. We do not need the things of Egypt or of Babylon. We do not need the things of Nimrod who was an archetype for the Antichrist, who made for himself elevated pulpits, who put, who built stages and all these fancy things. He wanted the attention and accolade of men. He wanted to control them. We do not need it. The church does not need it. The anointed church has everything that it needs in the power and authority and word and anointing of God, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it any more than the gates of the Philistine could prevail against Samson when he was anointed. But yet, when he lost it, when he compromised, when he got complacent, when he got too comfortable in that place that he was in and stopped reaching for God to go up higher, when he got distracted, it says he woke out of his sleep when the enemy came to attack and he walked outside and he shook himself like before. He did what he always did before and it says he didn't even know that the Lord had left them. The Holy Spirit wasn't with them. The anointing had departed. Could have been one of his greatest victories. He was overtaken by the enemy in a suddenly, because he went to sleep, he was caught unaware. Lord, let it not be counted once among us, Lord, and we pray for conviction in the church that you would shake them and awaken them, that they would be prepared for the moment when the Philistines rush in, that the anointing would break the yokes of bondage that there would be power and provision and purpose and that we would walk in the calling for which you have created us to be those priests and kings that tell the world who you are, that rightly represent you, that demonstrate your power, that bring them back into the Father's house. Lord, let us give to you all that you give. Let us be generous. Let us remember to not be distracted. Let us remember to not take more than we need. Let us remember to not compromise or incorporate with the culture. Let us remember all of these things. And let us always give back to you the first fruits. All of our heart, all of our love, all of our attention, all of those characteristics. Let us spend time with you daily to give those things to you first and to others second. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.